What is the Podcast of Matrix? The Podcast of Matrix is your source for podcast media hosting. Get your entire podcast library hosted now at podcastermatrix.com. Welcome to the Pediatric Sports Medicine Podcast hosted by me, Dr. Mark Halstead. I cover current hot topics and recent research in the world of the young athlete relevant to healthcare professionals. This is the Pediatric Sports Medicine Podcast. For the last several decades, there's been a tremendous focus in the world of concussion on areas such as recognizing about when a concussion occurs, various diagnostic evaluations, treatment recommendations, and determining when it's appropriate time to return to play to sports after the concussion. However, it's really been only the last eight or nine years that there's been more emphasis, at least on a wider scale, of how to help kids in school when they're dealing with their concussion, typically what we refer to as return to learn. In this episode, we are going to be discussing the topic of returning to learn with leading experts in this field in ways that you as a healthcare professional dealing with concussion can best support students in their return to the classroom. Welcome to the Pediatric Sports Medicine Podcast. I appreciate you taking the time to listen and join us. I am Dr. Mark Halstead, your host. My guests today on the Pediatric Sports Medicine Podcast are two people who have been very influential to me in an area of concussion I have a lot of passion about, which is supporting students in the classroom following their concussion, otherwise known as Return to Learn. I've co-authored several articles and editorials with these two women, and they've been instrumental in my education about this area of concussion. Dr. Karen McAvoy is a dually credentialed clinical and school psychologist. She practiced as a pediatric psychologist at both Seattle and Denver Children's Hospital and as the director of the Center for Concussion at Rocky Mountain Hospital for Children. She also practiced as a school psychologist for 20 years and as a consultant to the Colorado Department of Education for an additional 10 years in the areas of brain injury and neurodiversity on learning and behavior. She is the author of REAP, an interdisciplinary team approach to concussion. Currently, she is seeing adults and children with various brain injury severities, half-time in Fort Collins, Colorado, and also travels the country providing training on return to learn to schools. Dr. Brenda Egan-Johnson is a doctor of education in the areas of mind, brain, and teaching. She has two decades of experience in the area of pediatric brain injury, education, and neurodevelopmental issues in children. She was instrumental in the creation of and directs a statewide program in Pennsylvania called Brain Steps. She is published in the area of pediatric brain injury, speaks nationally and internationally, and has received numerous awards for her work. She has trained nearly 3,000 school-based teams in the area of pediatric concussion. Her brother sustained a severe traumatic brain injury when they were teenagers, which is where her passion in this field began. Both of my guests are the co-founders of a wonderful online resource for educators called Get Schooled on Concussions, which can be found at GetSchooledOnConcussions.com. Welcome, Karen and Brenda. Thank you, Mark. Thank you. Glad to be here. We're happy to have you. So, So let's kind of talk about to start off with the overall impact that a concussion can have on school. So why, why is it even important that we discuss returning to learn? Well, I'm thrilled that the world of concussion is now beginning to talk about return to learn. If the research is showing that approximately 70% or 70 plus percent of students with a concussion between the ages of 5 and 18 will need about 28 days for resolution of that concussion, then that means for most of our students, they will be back at school within days and will need support for up to 28 days. So that's uh, about a month amount of time that the school will need to be supporting these students who are not feeling 100% uh, back to being a regular student. And now because the research has shown that about 40 plus percent of students that are getting their concussion um, and are back at school get concussions in non-sports related ways, we can't always assume that athletic trainers or the return to play legislation is following those kids. So at this point, We have to make sure that we're taking care of every student as they return to school, not just athletes. Every student athlete is a student first, and they all return back to school, even if they don't return back to play. So return to learn, I think, is a very uh, important topic at this time. You're right. It definitely is. And if I could just add on to what Karen said. So Karen focused on, on the importance that a concussion can have on a student's life at school. And also looking at it from the school side, there are some important considerations to consider about having a process that all of your staff follow to ensure that you're managing students consistently will save staff at the school time and effort um, if they follow a protocol 
And this also is, if it's done in the school consistently, return to learn, it could be a risk management tool also. It's an interesting way of thinking about that. I never really thought about it as a risk management tool before. So when we talk about risk management in relation to return to learn, something that Karen and I have both seen over and over again in our own states where we work is that sometimes students who do not, whose school is not following a return to learn plan, where they're not monitoring the student's recovery, they're not actively supporting the student academically, those schools, they don't have a a handle on where the student is in their recovery period. So therefore, when a student, and typically in in these instances, it is a student athlete, when they are cleared by a medical provider to return to sports, return to play, the school typically will just take that clearance and let the student return. However, what began to occur is we would have maybe a school nurse saying, wait a minute, this student who was just cleared to play, they've been having headaches every day. But that has something to do with this because the student never had a headache before their concussion. Now they still have a headache, but, but we have this clearance to return to play. If a school has a return to learn plan, and we'll talk about that, you know, as we go on today, if a school is prepared for students when they have a concussion and they return to school, all the staff is trained to understand concussion and how to academically support the student and monitor the student's recovery, they can feel comfortable either letting the student return to sports or if they feel a student still has not recovered, having a conversation and communicating with the medical provider based on the data that hopefully the school is collecting during the student's recovery. So it's all about communication and monitoring of students. Yeah, absolutely. I think, you know, when we think about that in terms of just just not having that communication there and making sure that everybody's on the same page, having some protocols in place, I think those are all important kind of concepts to think about because we don't really talk about that enough in the terms of return to learn. Everybody's so focused with these with kids in sports of, hey, how do we get them back to play, but forgetting that they still may be having some academic things. I mean, we, we I see this a lot in my office where we have kids who, you know, they're told by their pediatrician as example, well, you can go back to play when you're a week headache free. Well, that doesn't mean that they're performing at their normal function in school. So so that's a really important point from a risk management standpoint is, is just talking about, hey, right. maybe this kid isn't fully recovered yet, um, rather than focusing on a single symptom. You know, when we talk about you know, just kind of school in general, and even before we even talk about return to learn, you know, and Karen and I have worked together a lot on some webinars. And, you know, one of the concepts that that she goes through a lot on these webinars is just talking about the concept of not even just return to learn, it's getting kids physically into school or what we would call return to school. Can you talk about that a little bit, Karen? Yeah, when you look at the literature on return to to return to, to learn, um, you'll see that both the terms return to school and return to learn are used interchangeably almost um, like they're synonymous. But if you're in the field really working with this, um, you'll see that there really are some differences between them. And we often focus on wanting to have a student have a really good return to learn plan in place. We want the teachers to be supporting them, et cetera. But a teacher will say, I can't really do the good work that I do with my students who are struggling in a classroom if they are not first physically back in the seat at school. In our minds, return to school has begun to refer to a student physically being able to walk back into the school setting and be able to be present physically and cognitively in a classroom to hear instruction. So return to school trainings really need to be towards the parents and towards the healthcare providers because a parents' comfort level with uh, sending that student, their student back to school with symptoms is an important part about them physically returning to school. And a lot of that is based upon what the healthcare provider says in terms of advice about you should go back to school with symptoms or you should stay out of school until you're symptom-free, which we now know could be up to 28 days or four weeks. So how who you are talking to and advising with um, education on return to school is really the parent and the healthcare provider to support that student getting back into the classroom. 
Once they're back in the classroom, then you can start doing a really nice job with return to learn. And that has now become a process. Return to learn has become what the educators need to learn. So a teacher can do a really nice job differentiating their instruction for students who have various levels of learning or have different kinds of medical or psychological conditions in the classroom, and that's return to learn, how a teacher um, adjusts that for each student. But first of all, the student has to return to school, which is really about uh, parents and and, health care providers, and then the educator can do the return to learn piece. I think, you know, important concept you talked about there is just the role of the physician in this. And, and you know, sometimes I think we know we, we run into troubles now of some schools are now expecting physician notes, uh, providing supports for students following their concussion. I think the three of us are very well aware that the power to support students is best and, and the best people to do that are those in the school, not the physicians um, dictating that. But what can be done that we can help schools realize that they actually have that power and really to also help physicians realize that that they shouldn't be really the one dictating and micromanaging the school day for kids, that, that doing that early on is really crucial for these kids. You know, that's something that Karen and I talk about, and that's really the basis for um, our idea for Get Schooled on Concussions, was to empower schools to let the teachers and the school staff know that you have this knowledge, this educational knowledge, you understand pedagogy and how to support struggling students. A, a lot of school staff, when they receive a doctor's note saying the student needs special education, this student needs these, you know, academic accommodations, some schools implement them automatically with the parent brings the doctor note to the school, the school automatically implements every academic accommodation. Or on the flip side of that, student returns to school with a concussion, parent provides the school with a list of doctor-provided academic accommodations, and the school says, we are not going to implement those. Instead, we are going to implement our own. Now, both instances that I just talked about are really not the correct way to do it. The correct way and what should be happening is when a student has a concussion, they return to school after a period of time, one to two days or so. And once they are back at school, if they've seen a medical provider and the medical provider has provided any kind of academic support um, accommodations to the school via the parent, it's important for the school to know that those are only recommendations. Educational law states that schools cannot use only one source to determine eligibility or programming. While it's true that the school team has to consider any outside input from healthcare providers, schools do not have to agree with and implement the recommendations. They should and they need to take them into consideration. This is where we go back to the, the whole concept of communication. Uh, we need to have our healthcare providers working with our educational providers because medical providers, healthcare providers, doctors, you diagnose the students. Schools cannot diagnose the students, as you know. Once we have that diagnosis, the educators can then identify, okay, so this is the medical diagnosis, and the student is also experiencing these symptoms, and now they, they've also been um, you know, diagnosed with maybe a vestibular issue. The school, as long as they understand concussion and as long as they understand what the medical diagnosis is, they can then determine what appropriate supports the student may need in school based on that. The school can't ignore healthcare provider supports, and they shouldn't. They need to take them into consideration, knowing that they have the final say, but at the same time, their final say has to be based on data that they have or are collecting. So they need to know what are the teachers saying about this student if the student has been back to school yet. They need to know what are the symptoms the student is having, and how can we address those symptoms in the classroom to keep the student in the classroom learning under their symptom threshold? 
And I think that's an important one. When we talk, you know, when I talk to families about kids and their notes, you know, that's a big emphasis is, are you going to give me the note for school? And, you know, I stress with them, I say, you know, what my note is for for school is this is providing information for school. Because on a note that we have, and we'll, we'll put a link to this in our show notes, but on, on the note that I use, it basically kind of outlines what you're talking about. It You know, it says this student's been diagnosed with concussion, excuse him from school today. And, you know, these are things and the adjustments that we're going to make for these kids are going to need to be fluid and change based on their symptoms that they experience throughout the day and from day to day. But it's not the end all be all. And then we have some various things on our list that we check off. And, you know, I think the one thing that I, I think schools hate the most is when they get the note back from the physician that it has no testing or no screens or no whatever, and it, there's all these absolutes on there. But what I stress with the families the most is that my note is there to provide information for the school. School has to do what they need to do with that information, but it's not it's a, not a mandate to the school to do stuff. And I think once we start stressing that with families, I think it's a lot easier for, for the families also to be a little bit more engaged too, because then they just kind of pawn it off on the school, I think, too often of, you know, well, you have to follow the doctor's orders because the doctor gave you these orders. And then we wind up seeing it kind of go spiral. And, and then they're, they're not getting that support at home from their parents and they're not getting engaged to their parents. So I think that's kind of an important part. But, you know, I think one of the things that we kind of forget about a little bit here is that we have education speak and we have medical speak. And when I talk to, to residents and medical students, I always stress with them when we're talking to families in the office that we don't want to use things in medical terms to patients because they may not understand them. And it's very unlikely that the family is going to ask us the question, hey, well, what did you mean by I have borborygmia as an example? They, they don't know what that means. And so, so if you don't kind of explain that in normal terms to somebody, then we're going to run into more troubles. And so, so that's the same thing I think that medical providers run into with education educational terms is is how we use those. You know, we talk about adjustments and accommodations. You know, in, in, in medicine, I see lots of confusion interchanging the word sprain and strain. But can you kind of talk a little bit about the difference to the world of an educator to distinguish for healthcare professionals who don't know that difference between adjustments and accommodations? Because I think that's an important concept. I'd be happy to jump in on that one because it was sort of by trial and error that we kind of came up with the word adjustments. So in the world of education, when a student is struggling, whether it's a medical condition or a learning condition or behavioral condition, and they need some added um, additional targeted, more formalized support, they are often provided uh, what we call a 504, which we can get into and talk about a little bit later. But a 504 is a more formalized plan in a school setting. And the language around the interventions that you give for a 504 has for many years, been called accommodations. When concussion started coming, you know, into the the realm of educators, and they started to have to do a return to learn. When parents and healthcare providers started talking about giving interventions to students with concussions and calling them accommodations, we as educators that immediately made us think of 504s and more formalized plans, which have are required to have some data behind them, are required to take some time with it, um, have some federal guidelines around them. And so what we really meant to say is when kids are coming back into school after a concussion and we want the classroom teacher to give a very quick and informal and flexible and fluid kind of classroom support, we started calling those academic adjustments because the word adjustment was a neutral term and it didn't mean anything to educators that, um, you know, put us kind of thinking along the lines of a more formalized plan. So at least in the REIT manual, um, which is a resource that I think that we have that we can share later on the show, the REIT manual and the Get Schooled on Concussion materials have been very intentional about calling classroom academic supports academic adjustments and not calling academic supports or interventions accommodations until that student actually enters into the formal process of accommodations. And that has really helped keep our educators a little bit more clear about where is the student in their point of recovery, how long has it been, what level of support are we giving to the student. Those are some of the words that I think would be very helpful for parents or medical providers to understand means something different in an educator setting. 
So we're going to take a quick break, and when we come back, we will talk about some strategies to managing kids in school following their concussion. Thought about a career in voiceover? Need a great, cost-effective on-hold message for your organization or business? Don't know where to start? Check out The Voice Farm, your one-stop shop for voiceover needs. Check it out now by accessing The Voice Farm at voicefarmers.com and see what difference can be made with a company that is truly outside the box. From The Voice Box, voicefarmers.com. That's voicefarmers.com. Dr. Mark Halstead here. Do you like what you're hearing on the Pediatric Sports Medicine Podcast? If you want to learn how your business, organization, or effort can benefit from my focused audience of professionals interested in pediatric sports medicine, connect with us and let's have a conversation. You can reach out to us at pediatricsportsmedicinepodcast.com. Make your podcast soar with the Editor Core. Editing podcasts can be ugh, rough. Everyone knows that you'll spend at least double the time you use creating the podcast when editing it. Then there's the control freak factor and the gotta get it right the first time. Well, it's time to shove all that out the door and make your podcast soar with the Editor Core. The Editor Core is a talented, experienced team of podcast editors that have edited tens of thousands of hours of podcast content and they're ready for yours now. Check out editorcore.com because it's time. To make your podcast soar, editorcore.com. That's editorcore.com. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Pediatric Sports Medicine Podcast. Ideally, we don't want to have a cookie-cutter approach, so to speak, to manage these kids. I, I kind of cringe when I see the step-by-step -step approaches for Return to Learn that I've seen published sometimes. Because we know that these kids are so different with what they experience and they struggle following their concussion. They're all, they're all different, even from concussion to concussion. They can have a different spectrum of things. As I stress with kids day-to-day, hour-to-hour, class-to-class, you may experience things totally differently. Can you talk about some strategies that schools and educators can apply to help support these kids throughout the school day? Sure. This is exactly why it's so important for schools to be so involved in Return to Learn, because there is so much that happens at a school that is so flexible and um, so nuanced throughout the day, and why it's difficult for medical providers who are writing notes that are very absolute, like don't read or don't look at a computer, it, that doesn't really support a student through the whole day. A lot of what we talk about with Get Schooled on Concussions is a very much a school-based and school-directed approach to return to learn. We really want to empower schools and teachers, especially classroom teachers, to begin to provide supports immediately in the general ed classroom and to be very flexible with them and very nimble with those supports because they're going to change um, hour by hour and day by day. So some of the common supports that we talk to classroom teachers about are things like as soon as the student gets back in the classroom, you want to really provide for them a soft landing. The student coming back in the classroom after two to three or four days is probably still going to have symptoms when they get into the classroom. So simply allowing them to be in the classroom, to hear instruction, to hear lecture with less demands on them. So making sure that they're not overstimulated by noise, overstimulated by lights, overstimulated by too much activity in the classroom is, first of all, uh, the first step in dealing with mental fatigue and keeping them comfortable in the classroom so that they, hear, they can hear instruction. Once they've heard instruction, then the teachers have the uh, opportunity to give the gifts that help with workload adjustment. Because a student with a concussion is going to have slower processing speed, which just comes with the territory of a concussion, for maybe up to four weeks, having the student be in the classroom and learning but producing less work is one of the adjustments that can be very helpful right off the bat. So what many teachers like to do is to provide a student with extension of time frames with their workload or postponements. That might work for a week or so, but for a student who is really not keeping up with all of the current work and not able to make up all of the past work, removal of non-essential work and reduction of semi-essential work is probably the best intervention that classroom teachers can give 
to keep the workload down for these students more manageable, and then just focusing on what is absolutely essential. And then the third thing that we work on with classroom teachers is helping them figure out what's an appropriate amount of material to test or assess the student on. If you have to give grades, if you want to make sure that they have learned some of the material, how would you do that in the context of a concussion, which impacts the student's um, ability to remember and demonstrate that with quizzes and tests? Again, while it might be appropriate to exempt a student from a test or a quiz for the first week or two, we encourage teachers to start eventually slowly dipping their toe back in water, trying to get the student to take a, a little bit more of a quiz, maybe try some testing, and eventually be able to show mastery of the material in maybe some alternative ways like a collage or oral presentations or group presentations. But if you have to give a final, perhaps it could be broken off up over two days or they could use open books. So some things that will support their learning. So we start really with the gen ed teachers with just making them comfortable with symptom management and then workload management and then how to assess them with their short-term memory problems. Those interventions right there are kind of standard and are given to a lot of kids with learning issues, attentional issues and they can be very powerful for kids with concussion. I agree with everything that Karen just said. And then if you know that a student is identified with having a specific symptom, then the school can come up with even more additional supports that that student may need in a specific class. So it's important to think about where the student's going to be all day and what that classroom is like and even the school environment. So if a student, if you know a student has light sensitivity and noise sensitivity, it's good to warn the student before a fire drill, have them put on headphones or noise-canceling headphones, maybe even remove them from the school a few minutes before the fire alarm goes off. So little tweaks that can be made, and it's important to also let the school staff know we don't expect this to last a long time because we know that some of them are really dealing with a lot of students in their classroom who do have concussions. Also, if a student is removed from physical education, which they should be until they're recovered, they shouldn't just be sitting on the sidelines because I have heard so many times, so many stories over the years where a student is sitting in the auditorium where they have their gym class on the stage and the basketball hits them in the head and you know knocked one kid out after his concussion because he was sitting there reading a book and another time a student was on the side of the gym reading a book or not reading but just on the side of the gym and the ball hit them in the head and so you know removing the students from getting hit in the head again or any chance of it is a good idea a lot of recommendations that schools do receive from providers, healthcare providers, talk about lessening the workload. And that seems to sometimes throw them for a real loop. So if you say lessen the workload by 50%, lessen the workload by 75%, some of them have a difficult time trying to figure out exactly what that means. So it's almost better to just say, focus on the key learning content for that day, because every teacher has something that they need to get across that day or several things. And once the student has demonstrated that they've grasped that key concept, don't make them repeat it over and over and over through worksheets and, you know, projects, but let them be done then for the day. So that's almost easier than giving a percentage, just cutting down the repetition. One other thing I want to mention is I've seen some schools over the years who would, in an effort for a student who can only come to school for half days due to their symptoms for several weeks. They let the student come in the morning one day and in the afternoon the second day and then the third day in the morning again, so they alternate. In theory, that sounds like a great idea because then the student will be getting all of their course content. Well, not all of it, but they won't be missing all of their courses. But really what's happened is it tends to cause students greater anxiety because now they are just flip-flopping their days and they're missing portions, but they're getting portions. So it's easier if a student can only go half a day. What time of day are they less tired, less fatigued? And 
can the student go, you know, maybe they're more awake in the morning. So can we put their classes in the morning, you know, for the first week? A lot of schools can't do that. So really there's no perfect way. It's just figuring out how can we support the student so that their symptoms do not overcome them and we can get them back in the classroom so they're learning in the learning environment and not missing too much school. Building in breaks throughout the day is a big one. Don't wait until the student asks for a break because by the time they ask for a break, they already need a break. And we want to catch them before they need a break. Yeah, I think that's an important concept when we're talking about that. It's kind of funny how you talked about the the whole thing of the the break and, and building that in and the half days is, you know, what I see when we have that half day approach is that we oftentimes wind up running into troubles where kids get into horrible sleep hygiene issues because on those half days where they're in the afternoon, they sleep in until 10 or 11. And then they get up and they go to their class and then now they kind of repeat that process. So when we get out of that normal sleep schedule, which was something I harp on tons in the office of just making sure that kids are having a really consistent bedtime and wake up time, if they're doing that half day schedule where it's morning, afternoon, I see that create all sorts of havoc. And then they just build up this fatigue factor because their body doesn't know when is it day and when is it night and when am I supposed to sleep and when am I not going to. So, So I see that a lot. It's it's also funny that you mentioned about the, uh, not so funny, but the kids getting hit. I, I swear I could write a book with the number of patients that I've seen over the last 15 years of who have been sitting on a sideline for whatever reason, or and they just seem to be a magnet for stuff coming and hitting them in the head. Yes. It's amazing. It is. And, you know, when I I get parents that kind of fight with me a little bit about that as far as saying, hey, you know, I want to let my kid be out at practice. And I tell them, well... Where are they going to be at practice? Are they going to be on the bench or are they going to be under a basket if it's basketball? Because that's probably not the best place for them to be at practice. And I give them examples of these kids that I've seen and and they'll swear, oh, it'll never be my kid. And sure enough, it is that kid uh, that gets hit again. And the big anxiety factor that I see with a lot of the families are is they're so worried that being in the school setting is going to make their concussion worse. The, the thing I emphasize time and time again with these kids is it's them being in the classroom is not going to make their concussion worse. Their symptoms may worsen, but their actual brain injury doesn't worsen by being in the classroom. I tell these kids, I've never seen a kid come into my office who has had a concussion from doing too much schoolwork. It's because they got hit in the head. So, and Karen, you've got a great analogy that I've stolen, and I've given you appropriate credit every time I do this with families, but you like to use an iPhone analogy for families as far as kind of what their brain is like on a concussion. Can you kind of give that analogy to to our audience? Yeah. I like to uh, tell our kids when we're working with them in the clinic or um, with parents or teachers, because a concussion is such a scary medical thing that we try to get away from some of those scary thoughts, and we try to put everything into an energy metaphor, So I say to the kids, your cells are impacted and they're not as efficient, but they're not broken. When you have a concussion, you're like an iPhone 4 instead of an iPhone 11, and you're just not holding a charge well enough or long enough. People could get around perfectly fine with an an iPhone 4, but you're going to have to bring your charger with you. The other analogy that really works with kids is um, you're a car with a small gas tank, and you could get around town. If you had a car with a small gas tank, but you'd have to limit where you would go. We use that analogy because we don't want kids and parents to get so anxious about this concussion that they feel like they can never even get out of the garage. You can get out of the garage, but you're probably only going to go maybe to the grocery store and the post office, and you're going to know where the gas stations are to refill. We try to use that analogy to get people more comfortable with the idea of be at school Let the teachers do what they can to support your symptoms at school, but you also have to learn to support your own symptoms at school based on how well you manage your energy. It's always striking to me how many people feel like a partial day is kind of a standard return-to-learn step-in plan. And actually, from my experience, um, both on the school side as well as on the being in the clinic side, is that the kids who go to school on a partial day, it begins to just spin off into all kinds of other anxieties and social isolation. And then there's a lot of misunderstanding about, you know, when they should go. They end up missing classes they don't like to attend 
which happen to almost always be the core classes. They like to go to the electives, and it just gets really complicated. When I see kids in my clinic, we try to start with the energy model, and we say, we really want you at school all day, every day, but you might have to take many more breaks throughout the day. Um, you're going to have to take your eyes off the computer or off the book, and if you, you know it's okay to read. But after you know a certain period, some mental exertion, take your eyes off, get a drink of water, go walk around a little bit, or take a strategic rest break like Brenda was talking about earlier where you know that at 10.15 you have PE, instead of going and trying to sit on the sidelines, you're going to go and do a 20-minute rest proactively in the clinic just so that we're always trying to keep symptoms so that they are annoying and not debilitating. But the student being in the classroom so that they hear the instruction is often enough for a teacher, and they will cut down the work as long as they know that the student's been there hearing the instruction. So partial days really mess with that. And I think, you know, once you really teach a student how to manage their energy, they're able to manage their symptoms. The symptoms are not gone, but they're not so debilitating that they have to go home midday. And that's really what we're striving for. Yeah, and I try and emphasize with these kids too. It's I, I don't know many teachers that are out there to try and fail their students. Obviously, it doesn't look good upon them as an educator if their students are failing in their classroom. So I think most educators are there to try and help these kids, and I try and emphasize that. And, you know, we all have those kids who, I don't get along at all with my English teacher. They just don't do anything for me. And and, and that may be the case, but, but that kind of comes up to our next kind of topic here is that the communication part of this where, you know, one of the things that I see a lot of difficulties with are these kids communicating with their teachers about how they feel. We see the same with communication troubles of getting that information, the proper information from the physician to the school and the school back to the the physician. You know, we have some barriers that are there. Uh, We have HIPAA from the medical side where we can't communicate information without parents giving us the ability to do that. And then there's the educator side of that, of the barrier of FERPA, where we can't get information about how they're doing in school without the parent giving us that uh, clearance to do so. So if we're not having that information, you know, we can't manage those plans optimally for these kids. But I think, you know, for me, the the emphasis and what I stress with these kids in the office, you just got to be talking with your teachers about how you feel because they can't see any of the things that you're experiencing after a concussion. And if they're not doing that, then we're going to run into troubles there. So do either of you have any other strategies that you use as far as trying to help kind of break down some of those communication barriers, either, you know, teacher to student, student to teacher, physician to school, all all those avenues? One thing that I have found, and I've thought a lot about this, because as you've said, you know, we have, there is a communication issue um, on both sides. So we have to get the communication going, but not only communication, but processes. The processes have to be in place along with the communication and, and it needs to remain consistent in order for it to be most effective. So my suggestion to schools is your very first meeting with a parent, have the parent sign off on the the school district's privacy form, their FERPA form, saying that they're allowed to contact um, the healthcare provider. And the medical providers should also do that on their side automatically say, you know, okay, the student's been diagnosed with a concussion. Here's our form. We want to be able to communicate with your school. So that should be like an automatic on both sides, school, healthcare provider. Now, some parents refuse. They do not want the school talking to their doctor. In those instances, I always encourage the school, okay, well, it's still your responsibility to monitor the student while the student's at school and to support that student. So when you're, when you're monitoring their academics, their symptoms, how they're feeling during the day, log it. Somehow, whether you have an actual academic and symptom monitoring form or it's not something formal, log it, make copies of it for the parent, and give the parent those copies so that they can then provide them to the medical provider. So at least the healthcare providers are seeing what the school is seeing during the day because sometimes it can look very different from how a student may present themselves if they want to go back to sports. You know, maybe the student has a big game coming up. 
they don't want to tell anyone that they have headaches during the day and it's if the school's not talking to the medical provider, how will you know? So really, it's important. Communication and processes need to be in place. I agree. You know, Mark, it always strikes me so funny that with all the webinars that we do that the schools are so timid with, you know, getting that release of information to talk to the medical providers. And there's always this issue of, you know, that we can't be communicating you know, in the 10 years that I have been you know, running a concussion clinic, I've just never really had that problem because I just make it standard in my clinic. When I see a student with a concussion, it is automatic on the clinic side that the parent signs a release of information so that I can talk to the school. And we encourage that on the, when they go back to the school, they sign it on the other end. And then once the student leaves the clinic, I am on the phone with the school and we set up uh, phone communication and email communication for the whole time, every single time we see the student in the clinic. That allows me to share whatever we find when the student is in the clinic, but it also allows the schools to give me a call and let me know what's working or not working. And that has become a really important part in you know, being able to determine if the student is not attending enough or perhaps, you know, trying to, you know, get back to sport and not trying to get back to academics. So this release of information on both ways just seems to be the best way to do it. But we need to get schools and parents and medical providers just comfortable just thinking of that as standard. So that's that process that um, Brenda is talking about. And then with my students, when I see them in the clinic, I am always saying to them and to the parents, that everything will go a lot better if the student is the one that's talking to the teachers. Now, of course, that really applies more to high school students and maybe some upper middle school students. Lower middle school students in elementary are going to need a little bit of help talking to teachers. I always say to the students, and a lot of this material is in the REAP as well as the Get Schooled on Concussions material, that will say to a student, you need to be checking in with your teachers regularly. You need to be the one that's advocating for yourself. And you need to be present because if you expect the teachers to give you what we call gifts, which is a reduction of work or adjusting your work, you need to be present for the lectures and you need to be showing that you are doing absolutely everything you can. And students that take that on generally don't have, they don't get too far behind with their teachers. Like you say, the teachers are very accommodating to them. And I often say to my students, you never know which teacher is going to be really supportive. A lot of that has to do with whether that person has had a concussion in their life, whether they've had a family member with a concussion. People say that AP teachers are going to be harder and will not give adjustments. I find that that's not true if you have an AP teacher who really knows about concussions. I always say to my students, you're going to have about, if you have seven teachers, you're going to have five that are pretty supportive. If you go work with them, you're going to have two that might be sticklers, but that's okay. We always get by with just adjusting the energy with, you know, having at least five of them supporting us. I think that, yes, communication is an important thing to have with signatures, but really uh, a lot of this needs to fall on the student who is responsible to not only be working with those teachers, but we also require that the student get us teacher feedback and bring that in in written form before we will start the graduated return to play back to their sport. Yeah, and I give kids options, too, and we're talking about communicating with their teachers because, you know, I stress with them, I, I realize that not every single kid and probably the vast majority of kids that we see in high school and middle school don't feel super comfortable talking to their teachers about their feelings and what's going on with them physically or mentally. And so I tell them if they can't talk to them before, during, after class and let them know what stuff's going on, I stress with them, hey, every teacher I know has an email address. Send your teacher an email after school and let them know what stuff you had struggles with in your class. And I emphasize with them as well, don't don't just say, hey, I had a headache in your class today. That's not going to help the teacher very much. But if the teacher knows we were doing this and this made my headache worse, or I just can't focus or concentrate at all, or I'm getting super anxious about the fact that I've got five tests coming up and I don't know how I'm going to manage this dealing with my concussion, I think the teachers have a lot more information to work with there and can make better adjustments for these kids. 
but I, I think it's just it's just giving them some outlets because I, I know a lot of these kids are just super hesitant about like verbally talking to their teacher. It's intimidating to, to some of them, I think. And if it's not done through a social media outlet, I don't think that if they know they have the skills these days to do that, actually, honestly. But we can digress and talk about that in another time. So, you know, we, we've talked a lot about kind of supporting these kids in the early setting, but there are those kids that are going to be stragglers with their concussion, uh, and some aren't going to recover in that four weeks that we talk about. And, you know, we talk about 15% or so at the most that are going to typically take longer than four weeks to get better. So, what what do we do to support those kids that are having a longer recovery? You know, I've seen some physicians who are eager to ask for 504 plans early on in the process. We know 504s are an option for kids with prolonged recoveries, but how do each of you feel that that we can utilize that the best and maybe kind of emphasizing to physicians who aren't familiar with 504 plans? I'm, I am because I had to personally go through that with one of my children uh, of going through that process of a 504 and eventually an IEP. But I, I think a lot of physicians don't understand that whole process, what goes on and the resources that that takes on a school. So could you touch on that a little bit? So a 504 plan is for formal academic accommodations. So if you need this, you are no longer in the adjustment informal stage. There isn't really a timeline. Some people you'll hear say that the rule of thumb for a 504 plan for a medical disability that is supposed to be transient, like a concussion, where most people recover, is the timeline's about six months. However, that was the old timeline. So that's what people used to default to. If, if something lasted six months, then you could go for a 504 plan. Now we know that some kids have a need for a 504 plan earlier than that, much earlier than that, whereas other students do not have the need. And it's important, and I always guide schools, let's look at the definition of 504 under the regulations. Section 504 is from the Rehabilitation Act of 1973. It's not special education. It's just academic supports that the student will have in school that all teachers legally have to follow. And it's determined by a school team. The parent does not have to be in attendance, but it's best practice that they should be in attendance. And the definition states that it's a person with a disability who has a physical or mental impairment that substantially limits one or more major life activities. The key word there is substantially limits one or more life activities. So you may be thinking, well, what is a life activity? Well, in the realm of brain injury and concussion, a major life activity could be seeing, learning, reading, thinking, concentrating, sleeping, those are some of the major life activities that may be impacted after a concussion. Often, after a concussion, students are impacted in all of those areas. That's super common, but all students do not qualify for a 504 plan unless it's substantially impacting. To do a 504 plan earlier than four to six weeks is really premature, in my opinion, being in the field all these years because we see so many students recovering between four to six weeks and then some, some go into eight to 12 weeks, but we really see the majority of students do recover. That is really what a 504 plan is all about, is leveling the playing field between the student who has a medical disability of concussion that's impairing a life activity. I have also seen a school before who gave every student at four weeks post-concussion a 504 plan. As a parent, I think that's great. I would want my kids to have one at four weeks, definitely, because that means all of their teachers have to follow this plan. However, the school actually got in some, some difficulties because legally, educational law, they were just handing out 504 plans. So, and Dr. Perry Zirkel, he is a guru on this topic of concussion and educational law, and he said that, you know, it's not a, you don't win a prize at four weeks, and your prize isn't a 504 plan, because if a school does not evaluate a student based on need, that student may really need special education 
But the school is just giving everyone a 504 plan and assuming that that's okay. That is not okay. The schools really need to evaluate first. Now, when we say evaluate for a 504 plan, that does not mean the school has to go through a full-blown multi-factored evaluation. What this means is the school has to have some data to support. It can be observations. It can be teacher interviews. It can be student symptoms, grades. That's what a 504 plan is. So 504 plans are one way of dealing with a concussion in someone who's had a prolonged recovery. But then we talk about the next level of uh, intervention, which is an IEP or an individualized education plan. Can you talk a little bit more about that, Brenda? Yes. Special education in schools is, it falls under a special education law called Individuals with Disabilities Education Act, IDEA. And this is Well, so it's a law that's been around for years and years and years to protect students who have significant disabilities. And if a student does not recover from their concussion and they are really struggling in school and they actually need not only academic accommodations but modification of the curriculum, so either how things are being taught or what is being taught needs to change, then the student may qualify for special education. The IDEA law for special education added traumatic brain injury to the law back in 1990. It added autism and traumatic brain injury both as separate disability categories in the field of education that require specialized teacher knowledge. In order to qualify for special education as a student with a concussion, under the traumatic brain injury, it's called a primary exceptionality, would be traumatic brain injury, that student, it it really is permanent brain damage. So we're not expecting this student to recover. This student now needs either a separate curriculum, changes to their curriculum, modifications. Maybe Maybe the class is reading a certain novel at a certain level, and the student now has to read a different novel. That would be a modification to a curriculum. That's just one example. So not only do you need to have medical documentation of a brain injury slash concussion, but it needs to, so well, the actual definition is an acquired brain injury to the brain caused by an external physical force resulting in total or partial functional disability or psychosocial impairment, or both, that adversely affects a child's educational performance. So all schools need to do, not all, but after they evaluate a student, while they're evaluating a student for special education, they need to look at, and it's listed out in the law, cognition, language, memory, attention, reasoning, speech, problem-solving, psychosocial behaviors, physical functioning, information processing, abstract thinking, judgment, sensory, perceptual, and motor abilities. So I know, Mark, you're thinking, okay, so kids with concussion could fall under all of those sometimes or even only one. This is where the school needs to look at pre and post changes. That's the real trigger here. What are the pre and post changes in this child requiring special education? It is rare. Karen and I talk about this all the time. It is really rare for a student. I've never seen, personally, I've never seen a student after one concussion need special education. I have seen a few students, even though it's rare, who have needed special education after multiple concussions. But in all these years, I've personally never seen one with only one concussion need special ed unless they have a history of modifiers. So if that student has a history of headaches or migraines, if that student has a history of maybe attention issues but nothing that's really been diagnosed, sometimes that might kick a student over into really experiencing a lot of effects after a concussion and they you know, may not recover as quickly. They may have a lot of need in school. But if they have something underlying, that tends to uh, – those students we tend to see – might need special education a little bit more than students with a a clear history of nothing before their concussion. And whenever I talk about a modifier, I'm talking about a prior learning issue, sleep issue, attention issue, mental health issue, 
mental health does, you know, it overlaps so much with concussion. I would agree with everything that you've said. And I, I think what you've done is nicely describe what we in education already know as the ascending levels of support or sometimes in some schools it's known as the multi-tier system of support, MTSS, and in some schools it's known as the response to intervention, RTI. But I think that healthcare providers and parents don't know that education already has this existing model in place. I think that's why it's important for them to understand that when you have a student with a concussion coming back in after two to three days out, we in the schools are already doing everything we can to support them first in general education with as much as many of the academic adjustments as we possibly can. If they don't get better after a certain amount of time and or it's very severe, then all schools have available to them a problem-solving team approach or a student service team um, meeting, and they can try to figure out why the student is needing supports for a longer period of time or more intensely, and that bumps them up to a Tier 2 level, which is when we start providing 504s or more formalized plans. And then finally, if a student is really just not getting better, has permanent brain damage and needs modification of curriculum, that student would then, the, the process in schools naturally move that student on up to possibly a referral for special education, which is tier three. Just like a public health model, a pyramid, like in the public health model, we want to put the majority of our supports down into the general education or universal level because 80 to 90% of people will get better with that level of support. And that's the same with concussion, is that if we can catch it quickly and we can support immediately and flexibly, we hope not to contribute to this becoming a protracted, longer recovery. But for the 20 or so percent of students where they don't get better with just classroom interventions, that would bump up to a Tier 2 level, and then we can support them longer with formalized plans, of like a 504, for that very small percent, maybe 5% or even 1%, where this concussion has now really just turned into a traumatic brain injury that needs special education, then schools already have in place a way to continue to support them to that level. And I think that healthcare providers and parents don't understand that. So to get back to your original question, Mark, you had talked about how parents and healthcare providers ask for these uh, kinds of supports early on in a concussion. You were part of an article that Brenda and I wrote that tried to explain that once a healthcare provider or parent requests a 504 or consideration for an IEP, the school is obligated to at least look into that. They don't have to go through the full-blown evaluation, but they do have to collect some data and be able to justify their decision, whether, they, whether that is to move forward with a 504 or not. What that generally does is it just takes time and energy and resources away from working with the classroom teacher who could be providing supports for the student pretty immediately and flexibly, and it puts resources in a school kind of on the defensive to be making sure that, you know, healthcare providers and parents are not kind of jumping the line and getting 504s when by federal law, we can't just do that. We have to actually go through the process of assessing them and seeing if they're appropriate for it. We try to not have parents and healthcare providers request those things without understanding what that does to a school system, and to try to get parents and healthcare providers to understand that we already have supports in place in schools, and if you will, you know, work through the system, as a student who struggles for whatever reason, and that could be a concussion, will continue to be supported and taken care of in a school setting naturally. And I think that's an important key there is that, you know, again, I think as a healthcare provider and talking about this to other healthcare professionals, we have to just remember that the vast majority of kids we're going to see are going to do perfectly fine with academic adjustments, the simple temporary measures, 
it's going to be really rare for a kid to need to get to 504s. So if you're like Oprah and handing out 504 recommendations like candy at the early part of uh, a kid's recovery, you're, you're probably doing a disservice to the kid. And, and again, putting a lot of resources on the school unnecessarily to go through that intervention and, and on a very rare situation needing the IEP. But part of the purpose of this podcast is we're, we're trying to help, obviously, educate healthcare professionals on sports medicine topics. Return to Learn is a big one because, as I stress with physicians when I talk to them about this topic, is that we did not go to medical school to help figure out how to manage a kid's day in school after concussion. That was not part of our curriculum. That's the educators as far as how they are educated as far as helping to support kids who have issues. And again, I think the school part of that is emphasizing the whole part is that they can take what they've used in kids with learning disabilities and ADHD kids and other troubles, and they can apply that to a kid with a concussion and probably get very similar results with those kids in the short term. But now's the point. The gloves are going to be off. It's okay for either of you to be critical. Okay. So so what do you feel that health healthcare professionals, they just don't do well with return to learn and you would like to see done better? This is a hard one because I, you know, well, Karen, I both, we both value healthcare provider relationships with the schools, but in, in thinking about what you want me to answer, I'm going to talk about those who don't do it so well. What healthcare professionals can do better, in my opinion, is build local relationships. So not to use the same term I just used a few minutes ago for 504 plans again, but find a level playing field, level that playing field between what the healthcare providers are doing and what the schools are doing. Um, everyone's trying to manage the student with a concussion. Work together. Try not to tell schools what to do. Instead, build those relationships so you can talk to them. If you know someone out there who's an educator, talk to them. Ask them how to approach the schools. And schools should be doing the same thing with their medical providers and their healthcare providers, asking how can we have better relationships with you because it would benefit students with all types of disabilities and healthcare issues, not just concussion. But remember that if you tell a parent something like, your child's school has to do X, Y, Z because it's the law, that causes great adversity. Um, and it really doesn't help the student with a concussion at all. Instead, it pits the parent against the school. Um, and vice versa for schools, you know, it's, just leveling that playing field between everybody and and everyone staying in their lane, knowing their role, but yet working together to support the student. That is brilliant, Brenda. Um, Thank you. I would say, <laughs> pretty similar to that, I would say that we are seeing culture change in the making. I totally understand that healthcare providers are trying very hard to do what they can to support the student academically back at school because schools have not yet felt really comfortable doing that themselves. And right now, it's pretty standard that the academic recommendations come from a medical provider. Whether he or she is comfortable making those or not, it's still kind of standard that parents look to them for that. And schools are pretty willing to accept those recommendations and they don't yet feel really comfortable being the ones to either push back on that or, or try to massage those recommendations so they're a little bit more reasonable or relevant in a school. So I totally understand that that's why we're in the situation that we are in right now, where healthcare providers are perhaps either giving recommendations that are not appropriate in schools or not relevant or not realistic, such as don't let the student read words, I have heard. <laughs> That's been an actual recommendation. And then teachers will say, well, if I don't actually have them read words, what are they going to do here at school? So I think that we have to simultaneously, while we have to ask our healthcare providers to perhaps cut back or step back a little bit from giving these recommendations that actually in the end tie the hands of the educator, we have to simultaneously do everything we can to empower schools to start to take the reins of return to learn so that um, the student is getting something. Without those healthcare recommendations, parents often feel like the, the teachers are not doing anything for the student and we can't have that. So we kind of have to have a you know passing of the baton, everyone understanding each other's expertise and skills 
and have, uh, you know, while the, the educators step up a little bit, we need the healthcare providers to step back a little bit. And that's what's happened with autism. And that's what happened with ADHD. And eventually the schools became the directors of academic supports for kids with autism and ADHD. That's what we're hoping will happen with concussion as well. And that concussion will not remain in the hands of, you know, academic recommendations by healthcare providers who perhaps 40% of the students will never see a healthcare provider. Or if they see a healthcare provider, they don't see them frequently enough for those adjustments to be changed. And if they do get academic recommendations, they're, like I said, often not relevant or realistic. I think that we have to change the culture simultaneously. And I think that's important. I think that's where, you know, from my standpoint, I've been truly blessed to have been able to collaborate with both of you with this topic because, you know, again, I think too often, I think this is just society as a whole, if there's something that's outside of our realm and we don't have the expertise on it, a lot of people are just too scared to ask somebody who's actually in that area to fill them in on it. They'll let someone else talk to them about it. So for physicians, you know, they'll let physicians try and explain to them and talk to them about return to learn. And, and some will do it in a decent job and some unfortunately kind of go down a wrong pathway with this. And so I think having having that collaboration with those that are in the school setting and who have done this for a long time, like the two of you, I, I think has been a wonderful thing for me, at least opening my eyes and why I felt this was an important podcast to do just in general, just talking about this whole concept of return to learn. Cause I think it's, it's an area that still I'm, I'm learning more and more obviously all the time about this. Uh, it's not obviously my expertise. I have a lot of knowledge about it, but certainly, like I said, working with the two of you has been helpful for that. The Pearl of the Podcast. A clinical pearl is defined as a short, straightforward piece of advice, or perhaps as a take-home message in medical talks. We all have them and use them, but they're most helpful when we share them with others. Here is this episode's Pearl of the Podcast. So how about a pearl from each of you regarding Return to Learn? My pearl is, for those of you out there who know any child or adolescent or young adult or, or adult that has a concussion, please stop saying he doesn't look like she has a concussion or he's using his concussion as an excuse to get out of doing schoolwork or the concussion should be healed by now. We know the concussions are invisible, so learn what you can. There's a lot of information out there and know that it's an invisible injury. My pearl of the podcast is that I just really wanted healthcare providers and parents to know that Schools already have in place a system that takes care of all children who struggle at school, regardless of why they struggle, whether it's a medical condition, a psychological condition, a behavioral condition. There isn't a single student in a school setting that would not be able to go through a process of more and more levels of intervention for support. I think that would be the most important thing I would want people to know is to trust us that we can support and take care of your children regardless whether their need is very short-term and mild or whether it's very long-term and severe. Well, thank you both, uh, Brenda and Karen, for your time today. It was truly my pleasure to have both of you on our podcast as my guests. Be sure to check out our episode library and subscribe to this podcast through your favorite podcasting app at pediatricsportsmedicinepodcast.com. I'm Dr. Mark Halstead, and this has been the Pediatric Sports Medicine Podcast. Thank you for joining us today. We hope you will join us for future episodes. Find my entire library of episodes at pediatricsportsmedicinepodcast.com. I'm Dr. Mark Halstead, and this has been the Pediatric Sports Medicine Podcast.